open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 1 as we're beginning a new book tonight. Lamentations chapter 1. And the first chapter in Lamentations deals with the sorrows of Jerusalem. Jeremiah's two books are on one event. Jeremiah's, uh, the book of Jeremiah and and Lamentations. There are two books on one event, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem. The book of Jeremiah predicted Jerusalem's destruction. Lamentations looks back on its destruction. Lamentations, known as the Book of Tears, is a funeral song written for the fallen city of Jerusalem. It allows us to see what made, Jeru- what made Jeremiah so sad. A lamentation is a song or a poem expressing sorrow or crying. And Jeremiah was very sad, and Jeremiah was grieving here. He was called a weeping prophet. And his tears were for, for, were for what was ahead for Judah, his country, and for Jerusalem, the capital, and also the city of God. And God's judgment would come, and destruction would be the result of God's judgment. And je- therefore, Jeremiah wept. You see, his, his, he was crying not for himself. He wasn't mourning over his own suffering and his own loss. He was weeping because the people had rejected their God, the God who made them. And that is something to weep about, the God who loved them. The God who, who, who cried over them and who tried over and over and over to bless them. But they wouldn't have it. And Jeremiah's heart was broken because he knew that the selfishness and sinfulness of the people would bring them a lot of suffering and a long time in captivity, in exile away from home. Jeremiah wept over the sins of a nation about to be destroyed. Just like, the same, just like the time Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they had rejected him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he wept over men <clears throat> whose souls were lost, as well as over professed believers in the church who were living for the world and the flesh. If we truly enjoy God's word, I mean truly enjoy God's word, and God's gracious blessings, you know, and, that, and they've really gotten into our hearts, then we should have a burden for those that don't know Jesus. We should have a burden for the lost. And we should want to try to reach them for Christ. Godly men and godly women are affected with deep sorrow for the ungodly who are living in their sins. And Jeremiah's tears were tears of compassion and understanding. His heart was broken by those things that break God's heart. And even though the people brought God's judgment upon themselves, you know, they were deserving of the judgment they got, it still broke Jeremiah's heart. But you see, that's true love. Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity even if it's brought on by themselves. You know, and how many times, you know, when 
We see people getting away with stuff, and we say, God, how come, you know, you're not doing anything? And, you know, Lord, it's just, you know, it's, it's not right. And then we see them get what they deserve, and we go, finally. And we rejoice in their getting what they deserve. Paul said, hey, we're not to rejoice in that, even though it's brought upon themselves. The book of Jeremiah and Lamentations Focus, like I said, on one event, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was one of God's top-notch servants and one of a few whose emotions were really deep. They ran deep for the people and, and his care for the people and his love for the nation and his devotion to God ran really deep. And in our study of Lamentations, we're going to learn what it means to grieve with God. The purpose of the book of Lamentations is to teach people that if you disobey God, you're asking for trouble, and you're asking for disaster, and to show that God suffers when his people shall suffer. The date written was soon after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The setting for the book of Lamentations, Jerusalem has been destroyed by Babylon, and her people were killed, tortured, or taken captive. The key verse is in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 11. It says, My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. So Jerusalem has suffered an embarrassing defeat by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was once the proud city, and now it had been ransacked and destroyed. And as a result, disease... Famine and death are the usual consequences for a defeated people. But for, but for Jerusalem, there was added insult to injury. Because on top of all of that, it seemed like God didn't pay any attention to them. He wasn't paying any attention to the cries of the suffering survivors. So as we get into the book now, verses 1 through 11 covers a description of the city's destruction. Let's begin with verse 1, with the first chapter of Lamentations. And it says, How lonely sits the city, speaking of Jerusalem, how lonely sits the city that was full of people, uh, how like a widow is she, who was great among the nations, the princes among the provinces, has become a slave. So Lamentations starts out on a sad note. That continues all through the book. Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Jerusalem, man, it used to be a flourishing nation, a commercial and religious center. But now it was devastated and mostly deserted. Jerusalem, it says in verse 1, was once like a princess. But now she's compared to a widow who's suffering the death of her husband and her children. Jerusalem, who had once ruled the nations like Moab and Edom during the reigns of David and Solomon, was now brought down to the low level of a slave. So verse 1 is a clear picture of the before and the after of the what was and what, now, what it now is. Look at verse 2. Again, speaking of Jerusalem, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with her, and they have become her enemies. So 
it's really painful to be abandoned or betrayed when you're in need, especially by those that you thought were your friends. Judah had often put her trust in other nations instead of the Lord. Among all her lovers, it says in verse 2, all of her lovers and all of her friends, says not one of them was there for her when they needed him, when, when, when she needed them. Judah didn't listen to Jeremiah's warnings, and now Judah was suffering the consequences of trusting in the wrong things. Egypt had promised to help Jerusalem, but, G- but Egypt turned out to be undependable on top of being Judah's longtime enemy. Edom joined in the ransacking of the fallen city of Jerusalem, and the result of foolishly trusting on man's support rather than on the Lord. Look at verse 3. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and heart servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest, and all her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. All of her lovers, referring to her friends, all those that they took, put their faith in and all those that, that they had trusted, after they used her, it says that they cast her aside like a used-up plaything. Jerusalem was betrayed and troubled now, and she's weeping in the night, and she doesn't find any rest in the midst of all of her troubles. Verse 4. The roads of Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Verse 4 is a reminder that the roads leading to Jerusalem that used to be filled with travels, now they're empty. The priests, it says here, they sigh, they groan because the temple that used to be the center of their life and the center of their activity, it, it wasn't anymore. Her virgins, it says in verse 4, are troubled because their chances of getting married and having a family are doubtful. Verse 5. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her. Because, notice here's the reason, because of the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. So, Jeremiah is now saying that Judah's enemies were now their masters. They ruled over them. And it was the Lord who had brought this grief on Judah as punishment because of their transgressions or because of their sins. And the verse is also a painful reminder that her children have gone into captivity. Her innocent children have to suffer the consequences of their parents. Verse 6. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. So the princes or leaders left the city like scared deer. They, weren't, they didn't care about anybody but themselves. They weren't concerned about the people. They were only concerned about themselves. They left the people behind, the people who were so weak from fear and hunger that they couldn't escape those that were chasing them. The leaders who could have stopped the disaster if they would have surrendered like Jeremiah had had told them to do, they were now only thinking about themselves. Look at verse 7. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. 
When her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversary saw her and mocked her at her downfall. So Jerusalem here is remembering the good old days, their past glory. They're now in, in, in present misery. The Babylonians laughed at them. They, they, they laughed at the destruction they left behind in Jerusalem. And so verse 7 gives us a warning against self-righteous confidence. That self-righteous confidence that material comfort and, and security can never be taken away. And we need to remember that. And, and some people think when they're, they're, they're living the good life and, and everything is going well and seems to be on the right track, that, that, that it can never take, be taken away. Wrong. That's self-righteous confidence, confidence in material things, in the comforts of the world and the security. Hey, they can be taken away in, a, in an instant. We can have them today and, and tomorrow I, our world can be turned upside down. So we need to not have that self-righteous confidence. Verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Jerusalem's sin is first mentioned in verse 5. Here now in verse 8, it's looked at more closely. It's the main emphasis of the book. That is Jerusalem's sin. It's the picture of a woman that was once honored. That was Jerusalem. She was like a, a, a woman who was once honored. And, and, but now that woman isn't wanted anymore, just like Jerusalem isn't wanted anymore. She's avoided like a leper, like an unclean person with leprosy. That's what but, you know, uh, Jeremiah is comparing Jerusalem to now. It says here, her nakedness. Now, her nakedness probably refers to a person with a bad reputation. One who has become a harlot and clearly has no shame and shows her nakedness, which are her sins. So Judah's harlotry <clears throat> was taking part, you know, her sin was taking part in the immoral Baal ceremonies. The people now recognize their sin and have turned away in shame to hide themselves. Verse 9. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome or terrible. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. So verse 9 continues using the figure of the harlot whose sins have now caught up with her. And her sins are now obvious and visible to everyone. Her skirts here, Stripped away may be a, a reference to Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 22. And it says, if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your hills made bare. Also could be a reference to Jeremiah 13, 26, where Jeremiah said, therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. Jerusalem wasn't concerned about the responsibi their responsibility to the covenant they made with God. They weren't concerned about the responsibility of reflecting the holiness of God in daily living. And just as we are to do. You know, we are to be concerned. We are to, to reflect that holy life that we have, you know, uh, are to give to God in the way that we live every day, in the way we speak every day. So let these people be a warning to us, to those who weaken the credibility of their Christian witness 
because of their ungodly behavior. Jerusalem's devastating fall seems to have brought the need of the people to the point where they now are crying out for God. You see, they want to break now from their suffering. They want, to be, they want to break from the ridicule they're receiving from their enemies. And again, it's repeated again in verse 11. So again, be reminded that, you know, when, when, when we're not walking with God and, and we're living in sin, that, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be a great fall in our life, a backsliding. And the consequences can become so horrible you know that, but again, God will allow us to get so low that the only thing we can do is look up. That we cry out to God now because we don't until we get to that place. Unfortunately, we cry out to God, Lord. We want give me a break from the suffering, from the pain that I'm going through, the ridicule from my friends and my aunt. You know, it's 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 not a fun place to be. And just like Judah, a lot of people may turn to God only after a time of trouble. Why is it that we have to wait until our life becomes so messed up that we turn to God? But you know what? If it, if it turns us to God, then you know what, Lord? Bring on the affliction. Whatever it takes, God, bring on the affliction. It worked for David. And you know what? It will work for you too if you truly love God. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119.67 when he talked about the time that he went through affliction. He said, before I was afflicted, notice, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, after the affliction, he says, I keep your word. Because it's an uncomfortable place to be. Psalm 119.71, the psalmist says, it is good for me, notice, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. And he tells you why that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.75, he says, I know, O Lord, notice that your judgments are right. And you know, when we experience the judgment of God and the afflictions of God and the difficulties and God allows into our life, know, as the psalmist said, Lord, whatever you're doing or allowing in my life, it is right. It is the right thing for me. I know, Lord, that your judgments are right, notice, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Because the devil wants to come and tell you, oh, God doesn't love you. You must be in sin, which may be the effect or the, the, the reason, but it's not always. But again, Satan loves to tell you, well, you know, you, God doesn't love you or God doesn't care about you, and that's why he's afflicted you. No, it says here by the psalmist that God in his faithfulness has afflicted you because that's what's best for us sometimes. Verse 10. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those who you condemned not to enter your assembly. Jerusalem is rem remembering now how the Babylonians broke into the city after, 18, after the 18-month siege and stole all of its pleasant things, all of its treasures. And there's no greater disgust or humiliation that could happen to the Hebrews than for pagans to enter their temple that they love so much. You know what? Not even an Israelite could enter the holy place unless they were a priest. Verse 11. All her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their valuables for, for, uh, for food uh, to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. 
So added to their spiritual problem was this physical pain and misery of hunger. They were starving. Those living in Jerusalem, again, because of the complete destruction, they were forced to give up their prized possessions. You know what? Even their children, who were either eaten or sold as slaves in order to get food. That's how bad it was. In order to keep themselves alive during and after the siege. Then in verses 12 through 17, these verses covers the city's plea for compassion. Look at verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. Jerusalem is speaking here like a person who had experienced suffering beyond imagination. But nobody's giving them any sympathy. Nobody's nobody's responding to their misery. Jeremiah acknowledged that the suffering was being brought on because of God's wrath. Look at verse 13. From above, notice from above, he, God, has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. So the misery of the siege is told in detail by using figures like fire and a a net and sickness inside the city. Fire burned deep inside the city. Nobody was able to get away. Nobody could escape. And the people were weak from fear, disease, and hunger. So this verse leaves no doubt that God was the one who brought the calamity upon the city. God did it. Verse 14 The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. So uh, another figure is used here to describe the present destruction and helplessness of Jerusalem. It was like a heavy yoke around their neck. Jerusalem's sins were heavy and they couldn't be shaken off. They were in a weakened condition. Jerusalem was an easy victim because of their weakened uh, condition. They were easy victim for the enemy. Verse 15. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. In other words, the Lord wasn't helping his people in this struggle, in their struggle against their enemy anymore. The wine press mentioned here in verse 15 clearly represents the crushed resistance and the defenders' life, their lifeblood shed like grapes crushed in a wine press. So the verse here, verse 15, is a serious reminder that God's people are not immune from being punished when they sin. And again, we need to keep that in mind. We're not immune to that. Verse 16. For these things I weep, my eye, my eye overflows with water, because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. So the lack of a comforter, okay, the lack of a comforter, whether it was man or God, is mentioned several times in this chapter. Grief is always harder, it's always worse when it seems like nobody cares. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 136, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Notice what again what he said in verse 16. My eye, my overflows with water. The psalmist said, again, rivers of water run down 
from my eyes because men do not keep your law. And that's what broke Jeremiah's heart. They were experiencing their difficulty and misery because they didn't obey God's word. Godly men and godly women are affected with great sorrow for the sins of the ungodly. You know, what makes a person cry says a lot about that person, whether they're self-centered or God-centered. And the book of Lamentations allows us to see what made Jeremiah so sorrowful. Jeremiah's, as I said earlier, man, Jeremiah's emotions ran deep. And his emotions were broken by how much he cared for the people, his love for the nation, and his devotion to God. What causes you to cry? What causes your tears? Do you weep because your, your, your selfish pride or feelings have been hurt? Or because the people around you live sinful lives? And because they reject the God who loves them so much? Do you weep because you've lost something valuable? Or because the people around you, all around you, will suffer for their sinfulness? And our world, man, our world is filled with injustice. It's filled with poverty. It's filled with war and rebellion against God. All of this should, all of this should cause us to be sorrowful. It should, it should move us to tears and also to do something. And in studying lamentations, we can learn what it means to grieve with God. Look at verse 17. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. Jerusalem now is compared to a desperately sick or needy person. He says, with their arms stretched out begging for help, but there's not anybody, not a single person that, that's there, that comes to comfort them. Because, you see, the Lord has ordered its destruction. Jerusalem's neighbors, who should have been understanding and compassionate, man, they rejoiced when they saw Jerusalem's ruined state. Sin made it unclean, like the woman declared ceremonially unclean under the law of Moses. And sin is often compared in the Old Testament to something something that's disgusting. As Isaiah 64, 6 says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And then verses 18 through 20 covers the city's confession. Look at verse 18 and 19. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. Verse 19, I call for my lovers, but they deceive me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. Jerusalem now recognized the righteousness of God and their own sin. Notice what it says there. I rebelled. In other words, they're saying, yes, we behaved stubbornly. Jerusalem had deliberately ignored God's commands, and now the people were suffering the consequences. And there's no doubt about God's justice here. The way to reconciliation with God, it has to start with the confession of sin. The only way we can be reconciled to God is to confess our sin. Turn to Psalm 51. We're going to look at Psalm 51 closely now. I should have had you turn there earlier and I forgot. (laughs) Psalm 51.
Let's read verses 1 through 17 as soon as I get to Psalm 51. All right. Psalm 51, 1 through 7. And David said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Notice, for I acknowledge my transgressions, David says here, and my sin is always before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom." Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So notice he says in verse 2, cleanse me. He's confessing his sin, but he's saying cleanse me. What dirt is to the body, sin is to the inner person. So it was right for David to feel dirty here. Dirty because of what he had done in his sin with Bathsheba. By committing adultery and murder, he'd crossed the line that God had drawn in his law. That's what's meant by here by transgressions. He had missed the mark that God had set for him, which means he sinned, and he yielded to his twisted, sinful nature. That's the iniquity that's mentioned here. He had willfully rebelled against God, and no atonement was provided in the law for such deliberate sins. So all David could do here was to come to God and to fall only on God's mercy and his grace and his love. And notice he says in verse 1 here of Psalm 51, blot out. Blot out my sins. Blot out refers to a debt that must be paid. And then he says cleanse, which means refers to defilement that was caused by touching something unclean or from a disease. And in verse 2 and 7, he says, wash me. Notice, wash refers to the cleansing of dirty clothing. And in Jewish society of that day, to wash and to change clothes indicated a new beginning in life. Take off the old and put on the new. And David made such a new start. David had definitely sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but his greatest responsibility was to the Lord God, who had given the law to his people. Godly Jews saw all sins first and foremost as offensive against God. Joseph said the same thing. How can I do this wicked thing before God? How can I sin against God? David said it here. I've sinned against you and you only, Lord. David openly acknowledged his sins, and he got right with the Lord. And then he said in verse 7, notice in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a shrub with hairy stems that could be dipped into liquid, and the priest would use this hyssop to sprinkle blood or water on the people that needed ceremonial cleansing. And remember, uh, 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 Moses took a hyssop branch and sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. so that the death angel would pass by. And today, believers find their cleansing in the work of Jesus Christ, his accomplished work upon the cross. And then in verse 12, and let's look at verses 8 through 12 now, we see restoration. Verses 8 through 12. David goes on to say, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. 
Notice verse 12, he says, restore me. First there was the cleansing. And once there was the cleansing, now he can be restored. And he's saying, Lord, restore me. David's sin in these verses had affected his whole person. In this psalm, his eyes were affected. In verse 3, his mind was affected. In verse 6, his ears and bones were affected. In verse 8, his heart and spirit were affected. In verse 10, his hands uh, were, were affected. In verse 14, and his lips in verses 13 through 15. See, sin affects our entire being. And then the psalmist said in Psalm 32, 2 through 5, and again, this is the high cost of committing sin. The psalmist said, yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I ignored, and I'm sorry, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And Lord, you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Man, when we're in sin and we're not walking with God, it's heavy upon our lives. It weighs heavy upon us. But when we confess that sin, as the psalmist said here, you know, we're restored and we're back in fellowship with God. David knew this. So he asked for more than cleansing, as important as cleansing is. He wanted his entire being to be restored so that he could serve the Lord acceptably. David wanted the joy of the Lord within him, verse 12 said. No, it's restore, you know, the joy of the Lord. He wanted the face of the Lord smiling upon him. Joy and gladness is a Hebrew phrase meaning deep joy. David asked the Lord to create a new heart within him and to give him a steadfast spirit, you know, that wouldn't waver. Verse 10 is the key of the psalm and expresses the heart of David's concern. David knew that the inner person, the heart, was the source of his trouble, as well as the seat of his joy and his blessing. And David was incapable of changing his own heart. Only God can change our heart through Jesus Christ. Only God could work the miracle that David was looking for and wanting. And the same thing with all mankind. The Lord gave David the Holy Spirit when Samuel anointed him. And David didn't want to lose the blessing and the help of the Holy Spirit, like what happened to Saul when he sinned. Today, the Holy Spirit abides with believers. But God's children can lose his effective ministry if we grieve the Spirit by lying to him. We can quench the spirit through deliberate disobedience. And the phrase in verse 12, generous spirit, it refers to David's own spirit, as in verse 10. A generous, willing spirit is one that's not in bondage, but it's free, and it's submitted to the Spirit of God, who can minister through us and to us through his own spirit. It's not enough just to confess sin and to experience God's blessing. But we also have to let him renew us inside so that we'll conquer sin and not give in to temptation. Now, the Lord did forgive David, but he allowed David to suffer the heartbreaking consequences of his sins. Now, let's get back to Lamentations. <clears throat> Even though Jerusalem was willing to confess its sin, it felt the need for human sympathy. 
Judah again called all people to observe its suffering. It's saying, saying, look at us, people. We're suffering. Is there no compassion, no help? It had seen its young men and women carried into exile because of the destruction of uh, of Jerusalem. And and they were betrayed by their, their friends, you know, their allies, especially Egypt. And it had also watched the priests and the elders, the same leaders who ignored Jeremiah's warnings, They watched them die of starvation through the siege while scrounging for food that couldn't be found. Look at verse 20 now. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves. At home, it's like death. In verse 18, Jerusalem pleaded for the sympathy of other people. Here they are pleading to God, Lord, take notice of our suffering. And Jerusalem admitted again that they were rebellious and that that had what, and that's what led to their death. And now deadly disease is in the streets and in the homes because of it. And notice it says, my heart is, Jeremiah says, my heart is overturned within me. This describes sinner, uh, sin, se- severe inner suffering. And Hosea 11.8 is a similar phrase that's translated to mean compassion where Hosea said, my heart churns within me. And then verse 21 through 22 covers an appeal for punishment of Jerusalem's enemies. Look at verses 21 through 22 now. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day that you have announced that they may become like me. Let all her wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me. For all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Jerusalem's enemy heard of of its trouble. But instead of comforting them, they were rejoicing that God had brought punishment on his people. Jerusalem's response was to call on God to punish its enemies, even like God had punished them. Jerusalem also asked God, you know, often to bring vengeance on those who were persecuting him. Now, calling for a curse on your enemies was a common thing to do in those times of Jeremiah. And you know what? It's still a common thing today uh, for us to do, you know, when people hurt us. Lord, get them. Curse them, God. Let something happen to them. But you know what? Jesus calls for a different principle for us today. He said, love your enemies. Love those who hate you. Love those who do evil to you. Love those who persecute you. So in closing, this first chapter of Lamentations has focused on the misery and the destruction of a city that suffered the consequences of their sin. They're suffering, they're ignoring of Jeremiah's warnings that God punishes those who sin. It is a serious reminder that sooner or later, misery and sorrow will happen to all of those who think they can get away with sin, who think they can escape God's punishment. But judgment will come. And Solomon said, even though judgment isn't executed speedily, though judgment and God's punishment doesn't come right away, it's going to come. It's going to come in God's time, in God's way. And we need to remember that. Father, we thank you again for your word.
We thank you for what Jeremiah speaks of here, Lord. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for, again, the exhortations, God. And Lord, let us learn through the scriptures. As Paul said, these things were written for our admonition and for, our, for, th- for us to follow that we don't have to learn the hard way, that we don't have to learn through, through experience, God. And that, Father, we could eliminate so many problems from our life and in our life, God, if we would just obey your word, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And, Father, let us repent if we need to repent, God. And let us be restored to that fellowship with you, Lord. And, Father, restore the joy of our salvation and our fellowship with you, Father. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.